I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. I'm Martin Brick. And I'm Mike McGowan. Hey Martin, what do you get when you cross an insomniac, an unwilling agnostic, and a dyslexic? Someone who stays up all night torturing himself mentally over the question of whether or not there's a dog. Here in the Great Concavity. Guys, that is probably the most perfect intro quote you could have pulled from Infinite Jest. Uh, Mario and Hal talking, of course. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you. Love that joke. Yeah, that's great. Uh, welcome to you guys, uh, Michael and Martin, and to everyone else on our team here who's listening to episode 50 of The Great Concavity. Uh, it's really fun to have you guys on for this kind of milestone episode, I guess. Of course, for anyone who hasn't seen some of our recent social media posts, you guys are the editors of a book that's coming out in just a few days on November 14th called David Foster Wallace and Religion, Essays on Faith and Fiction. And uh, we're delighted to have you guys on to talk about the book today. Thank you so much for swinging by. Thanks for having us. We're excited. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And uh, let's, Dave, do you have, uh, you know, their, their bios. So, so Michael is a professor of philosophy and religion at Florida Southwestern State College. Martin, you're associate professor of English at Ohio Dominican University. Um, but can you give us, each of you, for our people who might be listening and not familiar, just a little bit more of, uh, maybe introduce yourselves and in that introduction, tell us uh, how you came to Wallace. Yeah, yeah. I'm Mike McGowan, and as uh, Matt just said, I teach philosophy and religion in Florida. Um, I did my graduate work at uh, Claremont Graduate University, and uh, more graduate work after that. Um, but it was the Claremont connection, actually, that uh, I find interesting with this Wallace stuff. Uh, after I graduated with my mm-hmm. Uh, PhD. Um, I was teaching, I was looking for a full-time gig and I was teaching. And one of the classes I was teaching was for one of those like online schools that basically gives you the curriculum and says, you have to teach like this. And uh, I was surprised to see a, the, uh, this was shortly after the, uh, the video of this is water came out. And so I used yeah. that in the class and, um, I, I, you know, I didn't know much about Wallace at the time, but, uh, used it in the class and then have been using it in basically all my classes since then. I actually just co-wrote an English 11 course for my school and I put that in as well. Right. Uh, but the links keep dropping, but I have, so I have to refine them all the time, but they just keep getting And do getting you mean the video that's so. kind of shot in a grocery store, right? And it's kind Correct. of like... Yeah, that one. Yeah. Like dr- well dramatic uh, take on it. It is well yeah, done. I thought yeah. it was great. Um, so anyway, it was about a year later. I was visiting my parents in New Jersey, and uh, I went to a bookstore because um, there's not much to do in South Jersey. And um, <laughs> I, I picked up a copy of Oblivion, and I had still at this point I hadn't you know I hadn't read any Wallace. I picked up a copy of Oblivion, and I kind of turned to the to like a random page and. Uh, I saw that there was like, this was a fiction story, but then I saw that there was a character named David Wallace in it. And I was like super intrigued. (laughs) Um, So on my drive back to Florida from New Jersey, I had ordered the audio version of Oblivion and listened to the whole thing. Um, And that kind of got me into Hmm. Wallace. My entry into Wallace was good old Neon. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hmm. that's got to be the one story in that book that has a David Wallace character or mention in it. I think right. that's the only one, but I would rank in probably the top three or four best things he's ever written. So good choice. I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah it's, it's strong. And it happened by yeah. chance. It's crazy. I think it's probably kind of rare from what I've heard that that Oblivion was the first Wallace that you mm. came across. That's pretty, that's a deep cut in a way, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. I, I heard, I think I had heard his name before and I, you know, I read, I was making my way through various novels and came across the like, you know, the 100 greatest English novels in English and, uh, you know, and I saw <laughs> right. that his was on there, but I, you know, Oblivion was my first deep dive. So after you read that, you were hmm. like, I'm going to go read more. You just kept reading them. I did, yeah. Um, and I started a paper because I saw that at least good old Neon seemed to, you know, and this gets us to the topic of religion, it seemed to, um, you know, ask a lot of religious questions. Um, so then I, yeah, I started writing a paper about it and then found out that a few other people were working on it. And that's kind of when I got um, uh, Adam Miller's name, The Gospel According to David Foster Wallace. And... Mm-hmm. Um, Got an advanced yeah. copy of that and found the Wallace Conference, made contacts with them. And um, yeah. And then at the conference, actually, cool. where I met my first panel ever was Dave's panel. And he was talking about uh, uh, Mario Floats. So hopefully he'll, uh, you know, give a summary of his chapter as well. Um, so, but I, it seemed to me like, <laughs> yeah, soteriology. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, that was great. And then you came up to me after and you're like, hey, I'm thinking about making a book on Wallace religion. Do you want to be in it? I was like, that sounds yeah. great. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that was 2016 when we met. I, I think, believe right? so. Yeah. At yeah. ISU. Yeah. Cool. Martin, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Go, go ahead and uh, give, give us a little bit of your backstory and how, you know, what is your academic path and how did you discover Wallace and all of that good stuff? Sure thing. Um, so um, in 1996, uh, as we all know, is an important year for uh, Wallace. Um, I sure. was about a year out of college or so. Um, I had an art degree. and did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And I ended up working at a Barnes Noble bookstore, um, mm. uh, which, uh, you know, was a good place to be. Uh, yeah, my wife was doing grad work. And, uh, you know, so I just was trying to find a find a job and, you know, got got a job at the Barnes Noble. And uh, all my coworkers there, you know, were um, basically all people that graduated with English degrees. And, uh, <laughs> you know, all the guys were reading this, this new exciting author, this David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest, you have to read it. Um, so I, I just got sucked in and, uh, you know, everybody else was reading it. And uh, I'm, I'm one of those kind of rare people that actually, you know, picked it up and just kind of went through. I had a good support network, so I was able to read it, you know, like all the way through the first time. Uh, I know so many people that like when it comes to infinite jest, they're like, ah, oh, I made it like 200 pages or something like a lot that. Of false starts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it, 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 there's a learning curve. Uh, yeah. But you know, I, it, having like every day I'd come to work and we we talk about it again. Uh, so I got really excited about it, and then you kind of work through um, some of the back stuff. Girl with curious hair and broom in the system. Um, it wasn't too long after that that the supposedly fun thing was uh, published. So, um, so the late '90s did a lot of reading of um, of David Foster Wallace. Hmm. Um, it was cool. still a couple of years yet before I made my way to grad school. 
Um, and then in grad school, you know, I, I kind of took a different path. Um, ended up um, becoming a Joy Scholar. That's what I, I did my dissertation on. Um, I think I wrote one or two papers on on Wallace during you know my my years in grad school, but it wasn't something that I was really going to mm-hmm. build an academic career on. At the time, there wasn't a lot of people um, writing about him in a serious academic way. It kind of makes me wish I could have jumped on that bandwagon a little bit earlier. <laughs> Yeah, back with Boswell in like the early 2000s or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I always loved Wallace, so he was always kind of sitting there in the back of my mind. Um, hmm. You know, and then obviously uh, he started to come, you know, more and more uh, to the forefront in academic circles. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so I started reading more and more of the, the you know, the secondary sources that were being uh, published um, about him. And kind of on a whim, um it might also have been 2016 um, it, when I decided, you know, I'd just go to the, the conference and check it out. Um, and, and so that's when, you know, I really started taking it seriously as something, you know, that I wanted to do a little bit of academic work on, do some publishing on. Um, uh, I guess a little bit earlier than that, I did get a chance. I got some research grant money and I had a chance to go to the, the archives Oh, maybe about 2013 or so. Should have should have um, called so me, done, man. Done should've a little bit of work. Me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who you were at the time. <laughs> Next time I'm there, though, I will. Um, yeah. Um, so got interested, and uh, it was the second time I was at the the Wallace Conference in Normal. Um, Mike was um, the chair of my panel, and uh, so we got talking and. You know, I just basically said to him, I said, you know, there's, it seems like there's a lot of papers yeah. on Wallace and religion. People are really looking at this. And I'm kind of thinking maybe I'd want to put together a collection on this. And Mike says, I've already started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's in the book, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think that's, that, that's in the intro. I don't know if it's in, in the, uh, it's probably in the acknowledgments. But uh, yeah, essentially he had it started. So, uh, you know, he just uh, asked if I wanted to come on as a co-editor. And, you know, the rest is history. And, you know, I've I've never told you guys this story, I don't think, but I had uh, worked on a TOC for such a book, like, probably six or seven years ago. Um, Yeah, with some other people, maybe four or five, six years ago, somewhere in there, I had worked on a TOC. um, And, you know, there was probably, we were missing a few pieces, right? And I think by the time 2017, 2018, like you say, there were there was a little bit more of a critical mass of um, people actively working on Wallace and religion, whereas before it had only been a couple. You know, there were only a few before that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it really helped when when they opened up mm-hmm. the archive um, because there there are quite yeah. a few essays in in the collection that you know really dig deep into his papers and his letters. And, and look at how some of his pieces came together that I think reveals a lot. Yeah, that's my actual mm-hmm. first question for both of you, and, and I will let you both take this, uh, is that in the scholarly sort of perception of Wallace, there were you know really differing opinions about how he was uh, either a religious writer or not. You know, was he this ironist, or was he a nihilist, or was he really a Buddhist, you know, or was he really a spiritual person at all? And I think that's kind of baffling for some people who came at Wallace from one angle and said, wait a minute, is this guy like a Christian? Like, is this a Christian (laughs) writer? You know what I mean? (laughs) 
Yeah, I have people um, ask me that and, all the time. Yeah, you know, I want to get your takes on that because you kind of have different paths of getting to Wallace and had, um, I don't know, different perceptions. So I'm like, what 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 was your take on that that sort of divide, and also how did you want to represent that in the book? Well, for me, it was important to just acknowledge the diversity of thought on the matter, right? Um, to have different voices and different interpretations in the book, right? I I knew about uh, Chris Pikarski's dissertation. Um, I knew about Rob Short's dissertation. Uh, I, I read uh, Dave's thesis. I mean, I, these are just different approaches to the same question. And I thought, you know, you know, why can't, why does a book have to have a unified thesis? Like, why can't it just stand as, you know, um, kind of evidence that the community is divided on this. And um, I think the, the answers about Wallace and religion, the answers that probably, and I can say probably because I obviously never had the chance to know him personally, the answers that probably come closest are those that discuss higher power stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like in the book, it's that seems like that's his Wallace's own starting point for spirituality, right? Like, wasn't in his upbringing at all. That's kind of like his first spiritual foray, is through AA. And then maybe he gets a bit more specific, specifically interested in some other things. Right. Later. Yeah, and some of the some of the. Um the i don't want to say the tenets of aa but um some of the things aa cares about are related to the things that like buddhism cares about and christianity cares about and not that we want to treat these faith traditions as monolithic but um but there is a lot of overlap you know i think i think some of the big themes uh across these different traditions really do come through um so i basically one of the things i think definitely is i think rob Short really kind of hit it with um, with his uh, piece that AA really did kind of open Wallace up to the notion of something bigger. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think that resonates, you know, throughout his life. We see it in, in a lot of his conversations, in in the works themselves, in, in his letters, um, that he certainly had an appreciation for something bigger than himself. Um, I think people tend to see what they want to see in him. You know, um, if you start looking, you know, if, if you start looking for a Buddhist perspective, you're going to see a lot of Buddhism. If you start looking for a Christian yeah. perspective, you're going to see a lot of Christianity. Um, yeah. How, how does Chris Pikarski puts it? He says, if I have a Buddhist hammer, I'm going to find <laughs> right. Buddhist nails yeah, everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good line. Uh, <laughs> so, and he's not trying to like co-opt Wallace to be, you know, a Buddhist writer specifically. And I don't think myself or like Michael O'Connell are trying to say like, Wallace is exclusively a Christian writer, but we're saying that, you know, these religious themes are like pretty evident in his work. And here are some ways that we can think about and engage with them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And several of the, you know, the world's religions are interested in shrinking the ego and seeing, you know, seeing yourself as part of something larger. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and Rob's uh, essay, too, was, I think, one of the I mean, his whole dissertation and this project which we've talked to him extensively about is uh eye-opening for me and that when you read the genesis of aa what worked is that aa is described as a spiritual experience 
right. and it's like, well, how does AA work? And the the first guy, you know, Bill in the big book says, um, I've stopped drinking because I had a spiritual awakening. And right. that is integral to AA. And I think that that there's no way if AA was going to work with Wallace, there's no way that could have had an impact. But this brings me to another question for you both. And that whenever this topic was raised originally, it goes exactly this direction that we're talking now, which is biographical and, you know, was Wallace religious? And that seems to me like a bit of a separate question than like what is in his work. And I wanted Mm -hmm. you both to sort of speak to that and that what, you know, Michael, you mentioned good old neon, but like, what was the first thing you saw where you thought maybe this guy is, uh, you know, grappling with something that is truly religious? Yeah, well, um, yeah. So good old neon, I don't think is a very um, Christian piece at all. I mean, he talks about, well, I'm, I'm going to struggle to remember it now, but is it the Church of the Flaming Sword of the Redeemer? Right, <laughs> That's about right. the only mention of, of Christianity <laughs> in the thing. Um, and he talks about the Holy Spirit running through him like a juggernaut. Um, but I, don't, I didn't see Western, <laughs> I didn't see monotheistic or Abrahamic faiths in that story. I saw the Eastern and Asian religions. And this is why that first conference that I went to, I was playing around with an idea that uh, at least the character of Neil shares some similarities with things going on in Indian philosophy, actually. Um, I haven't... Right, I remember yeah, that paper. I haven't yeah. put that in print because um, it, it's it's an interesting idea, but I don't think it would work um, if I tried to, like, tease it out fully. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I saw, I saw the Asian religions in that piece. Uh, it wasn't until I got to Infinite Jest that I... Um, well, and started doing some homework on recovery groups that I started to, um, um, kind of, kind of start to, I don't know, to use this word again, tease out what, what it might mean to have a God of one's own understanding or a higher power you can choose. And what does that look like? You know, one of our, uh, astute listeners brought up, uh, the question of if Lyle factors significantly mm-hmm. into this book. And there's a couple of really quite brief mentions of Lyle. Uh, the the tennis sweat guru from right. Infinite Jest. Do you see Lyle as potentially like uh, having a chapter in a book like this at some point in the future, in terms of Eastern religion type stuff, like you're just talking about? Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that. Just yesterday, I listened to the interview, um, the interview Wallace gave where he read a part of that, and I have yeah, oh, yeah. I have no idea actually what to do with Lyle. I don't I don't know what to make of Lyle. <laughs> um, you know, I've read it a few times. It's pretty yeah, odd, right? I don't know what to do with it, uh, with that character, with his role. I, I just don't know. So maybe ask Martin because I'm not sure. Yeah, I really don't know what to do with Lyle either. He's an uh, an unusual character. Um, and one of the things I remember about Lyle that um, that kind of throws me for a loop is, you know, he's he's presented as this this guru character. Uh, and there's a scene where Hal is worried about his tennis game because he's, you know, he has to go and uh, um, see the grief counselor. And, you know, it's, it's, it's taking up too much time and all this kind of thing. And he's trying to figure out, um, you know, the best way to to get over that and get out of it. 
and and Lyle's the one that says, well, you don't need to figure out, you know, grief. You need to figure out grief counseling and you got to figure out what the counselor wants to say. And that just struck me as, you know, like kind of weirdly underhanded. And, <laughs> you know, he, here's this supposed to be this, yeah. this spiritual, genuine kind of guy. And he's basically saying, yeah, you want to get out of this? You know, here's here's the sneaky way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a funny reading. Hey, Michael, it's from the 96 Leonard Lopate interview. And it's like, cont- without context, right. it's a very right. odd piece of writing to read yep. on air. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if, I, if I'd if i heard that without reading the book, if that would make me want to read the rest of the right. book. <laughs> like, this guy who's licking the foreheads of teenagers, <laughs> like, it's very pet- pedophilic or yeah. something. Gives the young students the creeps. Mm-hmm. I had this weird... Uh theory about Lyle from a while back that uh, Jonathan Lethem sort of adopted this character and put it into Motherless Brooklyn a couple years later as a character named Wallace. Um, I don't know if you've read Motherless Brooklyn, but there's a a sort of long-haired, similar-looking Wallace character, uh, guru-type sweat person uh in in that book (laughs) and the main character of the book is named lionel like it's very close and i was like um Uh. yeah i don't i don't i don't know exactly what to make of that it feels like something that um he cared passionately about like that there is this character um I, i often think of this that i've worked in companies where they actually do employ like if you work at a big enough company and I've worked in in several like fortune 100 companies where you get into the boardroom situations and there's always like a guy in the back that's like a former surfer with like long hair and a ponytail and like walks around like (laughs) barefoot, you know, it's like super eccentric, but it's like a freaking genius. Uh And, you know, maybe like patented something that made the company like billions of dollars and just like has Hmm. free reign for life about what to do. And so like, I've actually, I don't think Wallace had experience with any of this, but I've actually seen like in real life that there are those kind of like weird, like guru type characters that exist on the fringes. So I think it's super interesting, but uh, I should, if I had known we were going to talk about this, I would go pull that actual passage from motherless Brooklyn out. So yeah. Oh yeah. My my bad on that. (laughs) Part of me, part of me wonders whether Lyle, like I, I have no evidence to back this up, but I wonder if you know when Wallace was training in his teens, maybe there was some poster in some locker room of of some guy that he kind of turned into a character later, and maybe he invented a whole backstory of you know some maybe some little statue or figurine. Like I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine where the character might have come from, and I, I just, I'm at a loss, so I have to just speculate. It's like an odd caricature, levitation, some magical realism type stuff going on with them. I think it's kind of interesting to note a a continuum. Maybe maybe there's an essay in this somewhere, Um, but he does really fall into that early Wallace, you know, ridiculous caricature kind of 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 character. Um, Yet at the same time, um, you know, he's a great precursor to Sylvanshine from Pale Game. And the levitation factor. You're right. The levi- you know, novels. it has that kind of yeah. oddly monastic feel. Well, yeah. And it's uh, totally. It's Drenian who levitates, right? Like 
Drinian. Oh, Drinian, yeah, not Silver Giant. With right. the Meredith Rand um, conversation, yeah. Yeah, no. So Drinian is is a good is a good lead in because I think um, by the time you get to Pale King, which again it's important to note was not published in Wallace's lifetime, uh, it seems like there yeah. are some overtly religious themes. Like whereas in Infinite Jest is very mature masterpiece work, I think, but it's it's a lot of the religious themes are veiled through AA. And in a lot of interviews, Wallace just straight up said, I'm not an AA, you know, but here's what I learned about it. And then in the Pale King, you get things that are sort of like just openly like, here's a guy talking about God or a guy right. talking about religion. Mm. And I sort of like what, what my question for you is like, what do you think he was doing there? Yes, yeah, interesting. You know, I'm not sure if it's a matter of he felt more and more comfortable taking that material and and talking about it or on the other hand if it was a matter of he began thinking more and more seriously um about religion and you know had more to work with overtly with a religion that wasn't directly tied to um to AA uh, my guess would be the latter is that you know with his years in AA um talking to the different kinds you know he always called it church um, but I think his experience there talking to people, you know, you see it show up uh, in some of his things. Um, I think he had a lot of respect for a lot of people there that probably did have more formal religious experience than he did. Um, and I think that kind of experience led him to think about it in a more direct way. And so, you know, we see a maturing of, of the way he thinks about, you know, faith and the big questions um, as we get into his later works. Yeah, and it, prob it, it probably yeah, also just makes, makes for more interesting sense. fiction, right? And that if you have characters grappling with, you know, existential questions rather than pretty simplistic ones, like that, there, you would run out of them if you didn't engage with religion, I think. Hmm. Uh, and, and this <laughs> yeah. is, uh, you know, since we're on the Pale King, there's several essays in the book that talk about Chris Fogel. And I... You know, did a conference paper years ago about sort of Fogel as a sort of conversion narrative, and you know he sort of converts from this life of nihilism to a meaningful life. And you know, I wanted to ask you both how you see that character in uh, relation to you know Gately and the AA narrative stuff that he had in uh, Infinite Jest. Yeah. Well. Um, in, in my, in the third chapter of this book, I, uh, kind of look at Nietzsche and Wallace and, um, one of the things I, uh, try to, one of the things I'm attempting in that chapter is to lay out different stages in Wallace's, um, kind of wrestling with the problem of nihilism. And if I'm right about this, if there's like an existential angst that's as the first stage, and if the second stage is kind of this, you know, self-medication through drugs and alcohol, uh, the third stage would be recovery. Uh, but a fourth stage is having to actually deal with some of the, um, you know, some of the actual issues that you covered up uh, in the second stage. And if I understand the character, I guess I would want to say... Um, Fogel is Wallace's attempt to deal with the underlying issues, I think. 
I, I see him in that um, kind of stage stage four of, of five stages dealing with nihilism. Well, speaking of nihilism, um, God bless Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Dorrance <laughs> right. Kelly, who wrote a book called All Things Shining, and it gave you know Wallace scholars a lot of fodder uh, with which to engage and disagree with their claims, which are primarily that you know there's no hope for redemption or salvation in Wallace's godless nihilistic universe. Uh, it seems like, and there's a funny comment about this in the intro that most of the contributors to this book tend to disagree with that take right <laughs> well and to go back to one of your first one of your first questions you know you're asking us what what was our goal with the book and you know um you know mike mike aptly pointed out that we didn't want to come down having one theory um about who wallace was personally you know in in terms of his mm-hmm. faith or um or, or behind his writing that there were a, a variety of views but i think the one thing we definitely agreed on is um, he wasn't a nihilist. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Fair. That yeah. is the unifying theme, hey? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like we've got chapters in this collection on things like AA, specifically on Christianity, Christian mysticism, Christian monasticism. Uh, there's work on Buddhism here, even Mormonism. And then there's chap- chapters that deal with, you know, the preoccupations of Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, C.S. Lewis, and post-secularism. So we've got quite a range of... Uh, religious inquiry throughout the book but it seems yeah like most of these chapters agree that nihilism is not the mo- the most motivating uh, underpinning of wallace's world that's, i mean even though the yeah, author even though all. the contributors to this book think that i mean i've heard not only dreyfus and kelly but i've heard papers at the wallace conference that uh, keep arguing that wallace was somehow you know, I one of one of the papers delivered a year or two ago is like he ended the paper with the words of Nirvana: "All alone is all we are." Right? Um, that's <laughs> that's uh, that's nihilism, and yeah, at least the contributors to this book disagree. Right? I think that Nirvana actually yeah. says "All in all is all we are," and it's just because oh, is to, that right? I had to fact check that line for the DT DT Max book. <laughs> And he still oh, okay. sticks with the argument, even though he gets the line wrong as well. He's like, well, it sounds like all alone is all we are. It's like, it's actually, <laughs> it's like, well, you could just change the line in the book. I was like, nope, I'm sticking with it, but just put in an end note into the book. That, um, but, but I mean, to me, this is like one of the first things that I've read of Wallace that I felt like, wow, he is truly grappling with this. In everything that he does, it was the Dostoevsky, the Joseph Frank review. Right. right. And those mm-hmm. questions oh, yeah. that he's asking in there, you know, how can you live a good life? Um, those are sort of naked versions of the fictional stories that he's telling, right? And I feel, especially with Fogel and uh, maybe the the thing that was excerpted as good people and all that, and you guys mentioned in the book, um, that 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 was some of the truest writing that he did and you know i wanted to ask you about the the sort of existential questions that he asks there how did you see that represented uh across the fiction and like uh, you know it's it's in the book but like in what way i mean one of the questions that he asked in there is literally like how do you live a good life right and don gately is uh trying to get sober he's trying not to take substances even when they're prescribed um, and Chris Fogel decides like, you know, if his life is going to matter even to himself, he's got to make some conscious choices in life and not just lay on right. the couch and watch 
as, as the, the world, world turns. turns. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I feel like you can't write that without having some direct experience with it, but also, uh, you know, people that have felt that have not been able to represent that in fiction as well. Um, but you know, I, is that really what's going on there? Like, am I, am I missing something? I, I don't know. I've struggled with this. I, for my money, I think after I visited the archive, I, I started to piece together a timeline and I think he might've been working on the Dostoevsky, uh, review of Frank's book. Was it, I'm trying to remember if it was one book or all of the books in the series. I think it was um, a couple of volumes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it covered all the volumes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember looking through Wallace's copy of the book and he, I see as he was reading that, I think he may have been on the cruise ship actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think there was a, a comment in the margin uh, something about a cruise, but anyway, just I, some light were... uh, deck reading, you know, like a two volume, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Dostoevsky> <laughs> <book>. <laughs> yeah. So I, I get the sense based on some of the other comments in the margins, some of which don't portray him in a super flattering way. Um, I get the sense that he was interested in living a moral and meaningful life, even in preparation for that, you know that review of Frank's books. You know, um, so for instance, one one part, if I'm remembering the the correct book from the archive, like he talks about in one of the margins, he writes that he's like tormented by lust on the cruise ship, and that he you know mm. is thinking there's got to be a way out of this, or there's got to be a better life. You know, this isn't this isn't normal. You know what I mean? That sounds um, like Augustine or something. The Confessions, Wallace's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, give give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> and it is really interesting. With the Fogel section is is probably one of my favorite, you know, extended bits of of Wallace's writing. Um, and that's that is interesting that he is in essence creating a very secular kind of conversion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's he he's called to be an accountant, yeah. <laughs> um, but of of course, you know the the little spark that creates that you know comes through a Jesuit mm -hmm. priest, and uh, you know I I think the the Dostoevsky uh, is is a great way to look at it because ultimately what it comes down to is is being a good person, and you get that all that powerful kind of stuff with his dad and him going from being a stoner to you know really trying to want to to do something to, to earn back his his late father's respect um so i think those those large questions are there and it certainly is you know something that he has come to um throughout his career you know you mentioned gately of course um but there's all kinds of other little bits uh little characters that have the same kind of concern am i a good person um i think of the the boy from For forever overhead who's really concerned with, you know, is he, is he a good son and is he a good, you know, brother to his little sister and all that kind of stuff. That, that question of how to be a good person just resonates again and again in Wallace's writing. Yeah. And I think Fogel, what he really wants is to, to have a meaningful life, right. And like to matter, not just to be, to be good and make good decisions, but to, to be someone or to have something that contributes to society and, you know, I felt like we went through this phase at the Wallace conference where there was a lot of papers talking about Hal and Gately. And then a couple of years ago, it shifted where there was a lot more interest in Fogel and Fogel's yeah. story. Um, and I remember one of our previous guests on the show, Jill Braithwaite, and we had talked with her about a sort of post 
secular way of really having religion, right? And that a lot of Paltelic. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people our age, you know, they're not going to they're not flocking to traditional churches, right? And if they're going to go to uh, a church, it has to be somewhat involved in some kind of public social justice and has to be somewhat involved in um, popular media and like real life and not disconnected from the, the current sort of world that we live in, the modern condition. Um, and so I, I see a lot of that in Fogel. I think it's interesting that you, you come back to it as well. And I honestly don't know enough about Dostoyevsky. I think that he did have some of the same concerns for his time, but uh, if anyone cares to like relate that back to Dostoyevsky more, who's like a scholar on that, I would love to hear it. Anyone going to take that bait? No. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a Dostoyevsky scholar. <laughs> um, but this, so the, the book of essays that we're talking about here, there's a, it's a wide range, right? We've talked a little bit about Christianity, but there is uh, Chris's thing about Buddhism, which is super interesting, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've had Chris on the show. Um, Wallace wrote to another guy uh, who is uh, also on our uh, Wallace Let's list about, about Buddhism. Um, was, were there things in here that you wanted people to cover that have not been covered yet? Well, um, several things were important to me as I was putting uh, the collection together. Not only did I want like the diversity of viewpoints, and I think an essay, I think there is an essay in the future on Indian philosophy and Wallace. I'm not going to give up on it yet. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think, um, yeah, it's not, it's not quite ready yet, but I think several of these essays, um, you know, we cover... I, I think Martin's going to do some work in the future on Wallace and Catholicism. And I know that I'd, yeah. Martin, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that's something I, I would like to dig into to know, you know, I, I only right now know some of the, you know, the kind of the popular uh, little tidbits that everybody knows, you know, that he uh, attempted to convert. He went through um, RCIA twice, <laughs> but, you know, both times uh, got kind of hung up on the, the issues of doubt um, you know, I know that I know a little bit, um, uh, and Mike actually had a conversation with, um, uh, with his roommate, roommate from Amherst, Mark Costello, um, you know, who said a little bit about, um, Catholicism and how that worked. But, you know, I think there certainly are things like, you know, Catholic priests, Jesuit priests show up in his writing, mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously we take you know we have certain things you can read it through a lens of catholicism um there might be some interest in um uh how he compares to flannery o'connor i think is something that would be interesting and interesting uh to explore so i definitely want to look at catholicism and wallace but um it's something i really need to get back to the archive and dig Mm -hmm. into thomas merton comes up in this book oh yeah thomas merton right richard Rohr comes up also catholic you know both kind of miss kind of have a mystical kind of lens um so yeah i think there's there's a lot of fertile exploration possible for that kind of a look yeah uh i think another area at least for some of my future work would be to drill into this aa conception of a higher power as well um yes in wallace's work but even more broadly like really how does this program work 
uh, how does you know choosing a god and a god with you know you know any attributes you basically decide on how does that work to help so many people um recover like i i mean this is a religious it, it, it's a religious question i mean i i'd love mm-hmm. to devote some scholarly attention to that and i think we could have done more in this book although i think rob short's essay is great um i think there's more to be said about that yeah i think one of the themes about aa that seems to recur a fair bit throughout this book is the emphasis on the community that it provides and that there's something potent about human communities that work as an active agent for recovery in a lot of different ways whether that's addiction or um you know, spirituality or things like that. So I think the the aspect of, you know, accountability that's built into AA and things like that and like basic human warmth <laughs> in, a, in a kind of a group setting like that is there's some mystical kind of powerful thing about it. Well, and the community, you know, pushes back against the solipsism yes. that, you know, is probably one of the yeah. most popular thing that when people look at Wallace, they look at his, um, his criticism of solipsism. So it, it seems natural that the you know, the AA and the other religious aspects of, of community is going to mm-hmm. resonate. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent two days ago, I spent all day with a um, a group of high school students who are in a charter school here in Austin for uh, students in recovery who are not mm-hmm. really able to go to regular high school. And uh, they have a meeting and like a guy got up to tell his story and you know, he's 16, 17 years old and he's like, I'm an alcoholic and uh, told his story. And and it was really fascinating to be in that setting of actually listening to someone in recovery at an AA meeting, tell their story in the year of our Lord, 2019. (laughs) And, And this kid, this kid is living here in Austin and he, um, is gay and he has a lot of cards stacked against him with his family mm. and he uh, doesn't really have a place to live as of like this weekend and he's trying to get his high school diploma figured out um, and to hear a kid like that get up and say you know I'm turning things over to God with a straight face which is sort of <laughs> the title yeah. of Dave's essays saying God with a straight face is like pretty much no other time in my sort of secular life do I get to to hear someone say that. Um, mm. And so I, I was pretty fascinating for me to say, well, okay, I know enough about this through what I've read about AA and Wallace to accept that that's some kind of shorthand for whatever he has determined as his higher power. Um mm. But going back to the the Catholicism thing, you know, I I also think it was fascinating that Wallace had recommended the Screw Tape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis. Uh, yeah. I put it as number one book at some point, and uh, had recommended Walter Miller, Canticle for Leibowitz, and other Walter Miller books, which are like super Catholic. Um, and really, the stuff Michael O'Connell has written about, and he wrote a fantastic essay about Wallace as a Christian existentialist, uh, comparing him to Walker Percy. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I talked about this in other shows where I'm a member of John Updike Society and like John Updike very clearly is a Christian or was a Christian and wrote pretty explicit Christian books in a lot of ways. Um, 
and there are some scholars who read that and want to say like, well, is Wallace a Christian writer? And Michael is a, sort of, I think, of the the group that would say, yes, he is. He's Christian existentialist. And like, what exactly does that does that mean? Or you know, what? Keep coming back to this question, like, what is he? You know, like, is he just an right. AA guy? Is he a Christian? Is he Catholic? Is he? Is there know? a definitive answer to this question? <laughs> I'm not sure there is. I tried yeah, to for this I book. Either. I tried to interview Karen Green, but yeah, her I was going to bring that uh, up. Kept putting me off. Hmm. Uh, I asked, I think, three times before I just gave up. Yeah. Um, I think she would have a unique insight here on you know what what Wallace is right. Yeah. Um, Chris Pykarski mentions w- having talked to her in his chapter, and that she had a few things to say about him going to sort of meditate towards the end of his life to put some Buddhist stuff yeah. into practice. Yeah. Yeah, but it, as as it relates to this existentialist tradition, I've been reading you know a little Camus and Sartre, and I I I think O'Connell's onto something there. I don't know about the Christian part of it. But I think he is in the existentialist tradition. I mean, emphasizing uh, the ability to decide, you know, what has meaning and what doesn't. I mean, that's, you know, this philosophy of you've got no excuse now because we're kind of um, revealing your your responsibility in the world. That's Sartre through and through. Hmm. Well, and but although Sartre was an atheist, so. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And and we've made it this far in the conversation without talking about This Is Water, which is the one sort of (laughs) uh, non-fictional thing that he wrote that was didactic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably um, comes up the most of all the all of Wallace's pieces in this collection, I would say. I didn't do an actual Mm -hmm. mathematic count, but I think it it seems to be in almost every essay. Hmm. It's hard not to be. It's hard to get around it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the few pieces with a lot of very direct yeah, lines. Totally. And that, the line that I was thinking of there is like the be it God or JC, you know, Allah, right. or JC. Wiccan and mother God. Like, I don't know any Christians who say JC. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, DC Talk in the early 90s in their, in their the rap JC, albums. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know DC Talk, my friend. <laughs> you don't have to drop that on me. Yeah, I had that tape. 92. But but to say JC, it's like yeah, it's like I'm trying to be hip, but I was like he just doesn't want to say Jesus in front of this <laughs> whole crowd, like because he knows like they will check out, and that's a very like youth pastor energy, you know? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to lose the crowd, man. I don't want to lose the audience here. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's also part of like what we were talking about with Jill a long time ago is like that that's the modern condition is like you cannot go with a straight face to someone and be like. Jesus loves you like you can't like you will be a, a like a Mormon missionary you know or right. like it's you're you're a certain type of person then it's yeah like, there's if like if a you just say factor. like hey maybe you know you should try to make choices in life that matter like like <laughs> the language matters very much yeah, I think yeah yeah I think this, I think is the be- this yeah I think this is the the really interesting insight that Wallace had though, is that in these recovery meetings, like there is, there's like, there's no pretense. I mean, it's people wrestling with things and they would have no embarrassment at all about saying Jesus with a straight face. I mean, it's actually, that's how it is. I met with some of Wallace's um, friends in the uh, St. Matthew's Episcopal church in Bloomington Mm. and um, yeah, talk to them. And there's a, 
I mean, there's a beauty to the single entendre principles, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a beauty to it, and there, it's yeah, it's a search for faith. What and I think on this issue of you know um, how directly Christian is his writing, you know, he asked a question, and you know, what what is he? Is he a Christian writer? And I first kind of started thinking, I don't know, can, can he be a Christian writer without being a Christian? <laughs> um, which I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that popped into my head that is a very valuable approach, and you know we've got a chapter on it in the book uh, by Ryan Lackey, is the post-secular um, approach. You know, that kind of looks at you know not specifically looking for a real formalized kind of church and you know an organized religion, but nevertheless uh, the importance of, of turning narratives of of people who feel that they need something larger and something more important. It, again, it often comes back to community. Um, some of those those post secular writers um, um, like McClure, um, so so that's something you know. I think we there certainly is value in looking at Wallace as a as a post secular writer, if mm-hmm. nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exa- that's way more concise and like erudite way of putting it. What I was trying to struggle with saying, uh, and, and I actually think Ryan's essay is fantastic there for that, and does dwell a lot on uh, Fogel. Um, and while we have it, you know, I realize now there's a couple of essays in here we have not mentioned yet. And one of my favorite in here is the one from Vern, uh, talking about broom of the system and the great Ohio desert. And, you know, this conversation we've had so far is like starting with infinite jest and moving into pale King and oblivion. But, uh, Vern is one of the few to say like, no, he was actually, dealing with a lot of this stuff and mentioning God in his first book. Yeah. Like in his early twenties, I was really impressed with that, with that essay. Cause you know, when we started this project, if you would have asked me, um, are you going to have an essay on <laughs> the system? I, I would have said, no, I don't really see how we can. Yeah. Have I mean, book. there is a televangelist, um, but, right? But Vern yeah. teased it out. Yeah. Well, and, and like, uh, like you, uh, you being, Mike in this case is that like he's a philosophy guy and like he's coming to Wallace from a really mm-hmm. kind of pure philosophy standpoint and is able to see a lot of the sort of language that is being used in Broom as representing something larger and in this case uh, Kierkegaard. That's what Vern argues, yeah. yeah. Um, I, w- I should say I've only read Broom once and I've read you know, other things more than once. So don't ask me any questions about Broom. And if you could edit this narrative <laughs> out too, that would be great. No, it's no. a good choice. I mean, just in the last episode, I said, don't waste your time reading Broom. So. Yeah. And I said also that I'd only read it once too, like 10 years ago. So you're in good company, Michael. <laughs> I mean, okay, good to know. But it's funny, right? And like, I think that's another thing is that he, maybe an infinite jest says like the only way to talk about really important stuff is like through humor. Or joking right. about it, and I got that same sense from the Great Ohio Desert. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> totally. There's some good lines in there too. You know, like I need to talk to my people in sand. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that's genius. Uh, and he's also one of the the other ones. I think Jessica Sager's uh, deals with Westward as well, and like Westward is probably you know. A, one of Wallace's major pieces of work, however successful you want to judge it, but 
Vern deals a little bit with um, with Westward. And so I wanted to ask you guys, that seems a little bit to me like a transitional work between Broom and Infinite Jest, but like how do mm. you place it in terms of his religion? Ooh, I'm going to let Martin field this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jessica comes into Westward in a really interesting way um, that, you know, doesn't deal with you know the actual presence of of religion in that piece you know too heavily other than the fact that you know there's a mormon missionary in it it, 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 yeah it's it's set up in this curious kind of like little joke he has this this guy going around i think he's from the car dealership or something no or is he from uh maybe maybe it's the uh the advertising firm right Um, oh yeah you know asking questions and they assume it's a mormon um, so you have this kind of assumption. Then Jessica does this really interesting thing where she looks at um, Wallace's thoughts on on media and you know media as this huge industry and how that comes through in the church and how the church kind of spreads their um, their message that way. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think I've really answered your question about um, this piece as uh, being transitional in terms of uh, Wallace's religion. Um, well, I think it's still dealing with some of the same questions, I guess. I mean, for me, uh, the, the questions about like, how should a person live? What 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 makes you a good person rather than just trying to seem to be a good person? Um, and really, uh, how much does that matter in life? I mean, I think all of those are, are things he's ultimately dealing with there. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. He's kind of got that coded through kind of the ridiculousness of the MFA programs right. as well, which doesn't come across as overtly spiritual. But I think there are those questions, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, a poem that is written in nothing situation raises those questions of, you know, what really matters and are you being sincere or are you just jumping through hoops? Right. And like that to me is also like is, you know, is can art be sublime and can can art function as something sacred um i'm 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 off in my own world right now dave you gotta jump in (laughs) i can't remember who talks about in the book but someone talks about the idea that um wallace wallace conflates the secular with the sacred which is to say that uh if it's been a church tradition to separate those since you know the medieval period since aquinas um, and I know Francis Schaeffer is interested in this in Escape from Reason, that a that a more correct theological approach is that uh, the secular and the sacred, that is to say, like the normal everyday things of life and the spiritual things of life are interconnected and intertwined and not housed in these two separate uh, levels. Uh, and that Wallace seems to get that and to infuse his fiction with that idea, um, particularly in The Pale King, that that you know the quote comes up a lot in this book throughout these essays uh, constant bliss in every atom i think it is right um right that if you can get past the boredom and the minutia of adult life that you can you can tap into that uh sacred oneness of all things which comes up in the kenyan address as well um can you guys speak to that a little bit more about how you see that working in wallace's fiction or how the the people in this book address that idea sacred secular well maybe matt is the person we should ask he's the one that started the uh the this is water essay um 
Yeah, don't don't ask me. I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> you know Wallace is very attuned going back into uh, Westward. He's very attuned to like advertising, and right. someone someone trying to sell you anything is such a turnoff, such an anathema mm-hmm. that like people of a certain age, which I'm just gonna assume we're all about like 29 years old, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, and I'm 29 and a half, so. <laughs> I, I, people of a certain age, like someone trying to come to you and sell you something is like, you can smell it from a mile away, yeah. um, m- much less trying to sell you on a particular lifestyle um, <laughs> yeah, or a particular religion. I mean, forget it. Like that, that's not even the way that that works. And like whatever is secular, I think has really changed like within our lifetimes and the idea of, of secularism has really been twisted up with the sacred and very little is honestly held completely sacred. And part of Wallace's biography, in my opinion, is tied up with this St. Dave, right? Mm -hmm. And that people are looking for secular saints. And uh, I would put, uh, Mr. Rogers in that category. <laughs> I, I would put, uh, there was a podcast that just came out about Dolly Parton. Everyone freaking right. loves Dolly Parton. Like right. she has like the highest approval rating of like beyond the Pope. Um, <laughs> and, and yet, you know, there's also a book by a really academic book by Helene Sisu about Jacques Derrida called Jacques Derrida is a young Jewish saint. Hmm. And I, I think that that's really interesting that people want there to be saints without sort of a sacred religion that's behind it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that, that sort of secular sacred thing, Dave, maybe this is what you're getting at. It's like, um, there's still a desire for it, even if it's not wholly inculcated into a religion or right. incorporated into religion. Like there's something about the human condition that we need paradigms of goodness to to function to like cohere our society in some way well i think that's one of the reasons that this is water works so well um and and why it's known so widely you know i don't i I can't tell you how often i talk to somebody and you know get talking about what i'm doing or things like that and they they hear david foster wallace and and that's what they know and you know they haven't read anything else by him Mm -hmm. but you know essentially when you bring it down to the idea of going to the grocery store you know is that going to be a sacred experience for you are you going to make it sacred or are you going to be miserable which of course leads us back to existentialism and the ability to choose right (laughs) which is is as relatable as like any pastor in the pulpit on a sunday morning would want their sermon to be right like that's what they're striving for. And Wallace actually did it in front of a huge crowd of people graduating college. Uh, and I would, you know, argue that he gave a type of sort of secular sermon there that was right. not just life advice, but like spiritual advice. Um, I've spoken with one member of Wallace's recovery group who ha- who is familiar with This Is Water, mm-hmm. and he tells me that after he heard the This Is Water speech, um, he, I mean, he basically says it's the big book in a in a um, in a different context. I yeah. mean, he tells me this is this is Wallace's religion you know maybe put into different words but it's it's the big book in a different context 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's super interesting because it goes back to what you're saying, Mike, about um, you know looking at the big book as a, a type of sacred text rather than the Bible, right? And like, or or let's look at AA as it's a religion unto itself, where you are choosing a higher power, you are choosing a very um, I would say relevant path, maybe. Um, but it's it's interesting to me that he wrote that that speech, um, and that's what he's like remembered for. I mean, I remember when it like yeah. came out, I was like, "Wow, that's really good." But I had no idea that it would be like the phenomenon that it is now. Yeah, that that sense. it would become the touchstone that people associate with him. Yeah. No, no, no way. Yeah, there's a great uh, line by Robert Hamilton in his essay in this book uh, where he's talking about this is water and he says, Wallace is issuing something tantamount to a threat, not the eat or be eaten cliche, but either worship a worthwhile object or perforce end up with a molech that will eat your utter destruction. Or that will <laughs> that will lead to your utter destruction. Molech is, of course, being like a sinister god of the pagans in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> that like... Israelites would sacrifice their children on altars too. That's a great line. That's a great line. I mean, that makes me think um, we haven't really engaged much with that uh, essay at all, um, which is really focused on the Pale King. Um, what other ones have we not mentioned, Dave? Well, I've got the book here. Let's see. We've the Robert. Do you say Bolger? 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 I think it's Bolger. Um, he also did that reader's guide to infinite jest, right? And this is, this is a reprint oh, yeah. from the. Bolger was the editor of gesturing towards reality. Right. right gesturing yeah. towards reality. Um, and that, that was Bulger, reprinted however. from that book as well. Right. Uh, but right. he, he knew Wallace and, uh, I think it's a super fascinating essay about AA uh, and, and exactly what we're talking about, like sort of, mm-hmm, he calls mm-hmm. it pragmatic spirituality, but I would put something about secularism in there too. Um, I was a fan. And it's really enlightening to see those direct uh, emails between the two of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's maybe, you know, for people who are really desperate to read more of unpublished David Foster Wallace stuff, uh, there is some in this book, which is his emails. Uh, if you have right, yeah. before in that other book, um, and you know, it's, it's, they're talking directly about AA and work and mm-hmm. life. And I mean, that's, that's pretty profound stuff. I don't think this is one of the emails that is included in, in that chapter, but just in, in kind of speaking to him, you know, as we're editing it, he was telling me, um, about one of his emails with Wallace and his take on God was, you know, something that he felt in his tummy, <laughs> which I just, you know, but it, it felt so fitting. That's like, yeah, I can, I can imagine, you know, David Foster Wallace talking about God as something you feel in your tummy. Such a cute word. <laughs> I think he also in the McCaffrey essay says that I know, I feel in my tummy that infinite jest is better work than broom of the system. <laughs> Like, so it's a recurring word in his vocabulary. Yeah, I find it hilarious yeah. that here you had this very erudite yeah. person, and and when it comes to something like that, something you know, kind of touching, he goes to these childish yeah. kind of words. Tummy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Isn't that part of his appeal, though? 
<laughs> totally. Yeah, his yeah. his everyday regular guyness. Yes. Well, and yeah, I think that's, that's one thing he liked about AA, right? Is it's not full of intellectuals, and it's not an intellectual exercise. That it's something you have to experience, and it's a change of attitude rather than a change of intellect. Um, and I think that was greatly freeing for him. That uh, very much fit his style, in my opinion. But uh, what what was the no. other essay you were going to mention? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to briefly mention Peter Spaulding. Uh, chapter six of this is where uh, Peter Spaulding, who is a young scholar. Um, one of the things that was important to me is I remember what it was like to be in graduate school and right out of graduate school and have trouble finding, you know, organs to publish in. I mean, it's it's hard work. And so I wanted this to and I'm really I, I'm proud of the fact that we've got, you know, scholars at all all stages of their of their uh, professional careers. But uh, one of the things that Spalding talks about, and I think it's an interesting question to pose to Wallace, and this gets us back to this as water as well, is um, as I read Lewis's um, uh, book about education, as I read that Lewis is arguing for the kind of the, the notion of a, transcendent or objective reality against um you know the the coming postmodern philosophy uh, mm-hmm. and i think spalding does an interesting job of uh, of highlighting that and this i think it gets us back to or uh, gets us back to this is water as well um it seems like one of part of the backstory for this is water is that didn't he ask for a copy of it's george steiner right yeah, George Steiner, right? Right. Um, well, he's, he was arguing for the value of the humanities, and he essentially said that you know, a theological outlook has to be a part of of your education if you want it to be right. meaningful. Uh, Stein, Steiner said you basically have to engage with the ultimate question at some point in whatever journey you are on academically. You have to engage with this question of like whether or not there is a god. And he was willing to admit that, you know, um, like a, a firm, thought-out agnosticism is is better than, what was his phrase for it? Um, like a, a like yeah, flabby, flabby agnosticism yeah. or something like that? <laughs> kind of like Wallace's unconsidered atheism for Fogel. Right. Yeah, I haven't read the Steiner speech, but my understanding was Wallace was writing in direct um, response to Steiner. So For, for sure if anything that gave Wallace freedom to in his speech to also engage with that question. Um, but from a, total, like, Oh, you can do this. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. But from a totally different angle, you know, rather than just yeah. get up there and be like, you know, the value of your education is learning how to think, you know, all, all mm. of those cliches. And so I think he was really struggling with those, those banal cliches. Um, and Steiner is just such an idiosyncratic, character like there's no one who remembers his speech right it's not it's not memorable um but wallace's is because he's able to take that same question and make it something that's super relatable to everyday life which i think peter spaulding actually does a great job with talking about uh c.s lewis and Uh c.s lewis Mm. sort of played that role and that uh for i don't know a hundred years if you had gone to a lecture and heard c.s lewis talk about these same things he had the same Mm -hmm. sort of following i thought it was a great 
That's a great essay. Yeah, I saw Peter give this talk at the conference. I think it was 2016 or 2017. Um, and I was quite thrilled to hear someone talk about C.S. Lewis in the context of Wallace, because we know that, you know, Screwtape Letters was he cited it among his favorite books. Uh, I went through The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when I was at the Wallace Archive this summer and looked at Wallace's mm. citations on it. Um, yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of cool overlap there between those two guys and the way that Spalding looks at the concept of uh, Lewis's Tao which is a, you know, a term that is kind of puzzling because, you know, Lewis is a, uh, Anglican Christian and he right. takes this term from, you know, Taoism from Eastern religion and uses it for his ends. Which Lewis's use of it, if I remember right from the, um, from the book on education, Lewis's use of it isn't, isn't, uh, it's not tied to Taoism. It's kind of a catch-all right. phrase for yeah, exactly yeah. reality. Yeah. Right. Real quick, it, you asked about other potential essays. I think there would be an interesting essay about actual Taoism and Wallace, mm, mm-hmm. areas of overlap or tension. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to, just because I know hardly anything about that, I would love to read more about what, because I'm sure Wallace knew more about it than I did. That, what, what he was doing with it but in, in Peter's essay I love how he sort of makes the connection between Wallace and Lewis as both kind of as stand-ins as like the everyman character or like a regular guy and I think that's part of what we were talking about with George Steiner is like George Steiner is very much not the every guy like no <laughs> no one can relate to him uh, and and Wallace that's his sort of framing mechanism for the whole speech is like I'm not the wise old fish. I'm not here to really give you advice. I'm just here to talk. And that's also a little bit like I was saying earlier of like this 1970s, like woke youth pastor energy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I just want right. to rap with you guys, man. Let's sit down and talk about what's going on in life. Uh, <laughs> but in a, in a much more sophisticated way, because he works in all of this pop culture references and still has authority. I mean, he's, the keynote yeah. speaker for this graduation um, yeah, right. and C.S. Lewis playing that same role. I thought it was, you know, I'd never read anyone else make that argument before Peter Spaulding. So I thought it was a great mm-hmm. essay. Yeah. There's a line in the conclusion about um, that. We've kind of only scratched the surface here in this collection of essays on Wallace and religion. Um so it seems to me that you guys are saying this is not the definitive conclusive book on this topic, um, but it seems to be sort of paving the way for this uh, branch of scholarship. Uh, and one of the things that could be a cool direction for the future is that certain pieces in the archive are currently not available to the public. Right. Uh, and one of these is you mentioned that there's a book on Christ's Sermon on the Mount which won't be open to the public until the death of Wallace's mother, Sally Foster Wallace. Um, I'm curious about how much you guys think this is going to open up um, on this topic of Wallace and religion once the full extent of the archive becomes open. Like, do you happen to to have a a knowledge of how many books could fit into this? Is it all conjecture at this point? How did you find out about the Sermon on the Mount book? Things like that. I'm curious to, where do you see that going? Yeah, it's hard to, it, it's a good question. It's hard to actually say because I don't know what's in them. Yeah. Um, and I, it happened because I, I looked through 
So I like looked through all the books that seemed even slightly religious in the archive. And then I also uh, was told that there was a, um, well, cause it was important to me to see what Wallace was reading. I think that's a window into someone's thinking mm-hmm. and the, how they're being formed. Um, totally. and I was also told by one of the, the archivists, I guess that's the right word, um, that they have in Wallace's library, there were sheets of paper and scraps with little writings on them and stuff like that in various pages of various books. And so I was like, well, that'd be interesting. So while I was there for, I wasn't expecting it to go anywhere, but I started looking at these scraps of paper where they were found. And then one of these scraps of paper was found in a book on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I go to the archivist and I ask him, well, could I see that book? And that's when he told me this wouldn't be available until um, Wallace's mother's death. Uh, but I, I, I think it'll be another another piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, it's hard to... Yeah. It might, it might be hard to get a handle on Wallace and spirituality because he himself was, you know, had a you know, a mixed set of attitudes towards religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but this will be another piece of the puzzle. Yeah. You know, I feel like I've looked at a lot of that stuff before it was locked up. This is a Maria Bustillo's essay that just like precipitated this, unfortunately. And, um, I don't know, man, it's kind of a mixed bag. Like anything that mentions his mom for sure. Like the one that Maria was writing about was the drama of the gifted child and um, oh, yeah. Bradshaw on the family that was another big book uh, and it's because like you know his parents are not like public figures his dad did die this past summer um, yeah. but you know his family is not like public figures and stuff that he wrote about them in the margins they locked right. down after Maria's thing came out um, but I don't know I mean Michael my impression a lot of that stuff was like very much um you know, some of the books he would underline stuff or just put a check mark in the margin up to like page 50 and then there's nothing or right. some, or a lot of those books is like, I don't know, it'd be one or two comments and then nothing. And it'd be amazing right. if there was some sort of comment in the margin. But I sort of feel like what we have already from him is is enough for like a whole nother book. <laughs> so like you could do like a in the work book. or reflecting on his reading. Yeah. Well, like what we have like you said, we haven't had anyone write extensively about like how Taoism influenced his work or who Hinduism or, or vice versa um, and sort of other religions and what, what we already know that's in the archive. Um, and, you know, I would love to see just a whole chapter on all that. You know, you mentioned all that, I think in the introduction to this book. Um, and that's a book, that's a story that has never been republished outside of the New Yorker. Um, I would love to just, you know, see more sort of close reading of stuff that's existing rather than, I don't know. I, I don't think there's some skeleton key out there that we're going to discover, but that's just right. my, <laughs> right. my opinion. Right. I agree. I think it is going to be a combination of people looking at the archives in, in different ways, you know, not just the religious books. I, you know, I think there's enlightening things on some of these kind of big questions in a lot of the other books. Um, in, in part, some of the self-help books, um, but some of the more, you know, the books that aren't overtly religious, more philosophical, perhaps. Um, so I think people reading those things, in addition to, um, close readings of, you know, his fiction is certainly going to take us in new directions. And yeah, we could easily, you know, I think there is another collection out there. Mm -hmm. 
for sure. And I, I will put this out there to both of you. Anyone listening, you want to come to the archive and study it, just please uh, email me and let me know that you're in town because I would love to talk to you about it while you're here. Um, so we're well past 60 minute mark and I <laughs> uh, was going to ask you guys if you have had any final thoughts because I feel like I've just talked way too damn much but I'm really excited about this book I'm really excited that it's out there I think there's going to be a lot of people uh, having questions about it so um, yeah. as a sort of wrap up thing like why don't each of you just tell us like what do you hope people take away from the book what, you know, what are you most excited about I guess I, I can go ahead um, one of the things that I found when researching for this book was, and I think I mentioned this to you, Matt, when you and I got together with Chris when I was at the archives, um, one of the things I've been increasingly uh, attracted to is the recovery program as a way of life. Um, and that's one thing I found in Wallace. And... Uh, I think for me, getting into Wallace's work was, um, it, it was, yeah, it was great to see someone put into, put on, put on the page, um, some of my own interior monologue, right? I know I'm not the first one to say this, but that was one of Wallace's, uh, particular gifts. And, um, uh, yeah, especially his sections dealing with recovery and the, the search for God and a higher power and trying to identify what that is. Um, yeah, that was that's an important and I think actually some future work of mine will try and answer that question as well. So uh, it's it's one that I'm looking forward to. Martin. I guess if there's just, you know, a single thing I want people to take away from the book is, you know, um, I think we should stop trying to ask this question of of what Wallace was. Was he a Buddhist? Was he a Christian? <laughs> yeah. Was he an agnostic? Um, right. And really just open up the way we read, um, put ourselves in a real dialogue with what he has to say, because it's pretty profound. Um, I think you can learn a lot more about yourself than you can about Wallace. So uh, it, it, as you read it in these ways, so that's what I would encourage people to do. Yeah. I think the book is really successful in doing that, Martin, in not just saying like, you know, here's what Wallace Wallace's writing fits into in a religious context, like, uh, or or and like no one in this book is trying to, as Chris Pikarski says, like co-opt him for a specific religion here. Um, but I think that the range of essays in it gives us that exact impression of what you're saying is that like here are a variety of ways that we can think about Wallace and and what the profundity of his work is doing, um, rather than trying to pigeonhole into him into something that he was not or never claimed to be. Um, so I think you've really opened up with this book, uh, uh, like the inquiry, you know, into a lot of different areas of study. And I think that's something that I appreciate a lot about it. So if that was one of your, your goals for this book, guys, well done. It is successful. <laughs> well, thank you. That was one of my goals. And I think Martin shares that too. Yeah, Absolutely. And you've got some great endorsements on the back of this book, too, from people like uh, Robert McLaughlin, who we talked about last episode, Matt, uh, from from Jeff Sievers, who we're all familiar with. Great guy. And then James K.A. Smith, which was he's a very significant uh, Christian theologian in the contemporary theology scene. Um, maybe tell us a bit about your correspondence with him for this. 
we actually just submitted a uh, a list of names who of people who may be interested in reviewing this book. We to preserve the integrity of the process. We didn't reach out to any of them ourselves. The publisher. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Did all that. Yeah. Yeah. The publisher did suggest um, that we look at a variety of types of mm-hmm. uh, people for endorsements. You know, want to say you know don't go to like all English people who write on Wallace. Um, <laughs> yeah. They said you know think about theologians or philosophers. Um, you know, people who might be interested in the broader topic, but maybe not necessarily Wallace scholars. So, you know, we put together a diverse list and uh, and let the publisher do the work. Hmm. And that came back. That's a good get. Nice. Yeah, we got we got some great <laughs> ones that came back. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic book, and it's a, a true honor for all of us to have collaborated on it a little bit. I really enjoyed absolutely uh, just getting to meet you guys at the conference. That was a big part of it and the importance of conferences. Um, so I will go ahead and put in a plug for our next year's conference, which will be in Austin and June 4, 5, and 6, 2020 here at the Ransom Center. We will have some events on UT campus and uh, really excited to announce our keynote speaker soon and all of the the things that as is the Wallace Society is putting together for next summer's conference in Austin. So the, the conference will continue to to thrive and in a new location next year. And in 2021, we will be in Amsterdam. So we wow. have a lot of plans wow. uh, to keep the, the conference alive and well and going and to keep this conversation going. So... Um, you know, I hope that a year from now or two years from now, we have new scholars who are citing this work and their work and building on it to, you know, keep the field alive. So thank you guys for, for laying down this foundation in the book. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, I well, thanks for having us on the show. Being, yeah, totally. I love this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet of you to say. Thank you so much. Well, We've been talking to Michael McGowan and Martin Brick, the editors of David Foster Wallace and Religion, Essays on Faith and Fiction. It will be available November 14th. Uh, It's what, the 11th today, the 10th today? Uh, By the time this episode comes out, it'll be out in the world. You can find it from Bloomsbury Academic Press. It comes out in hardcover. You can also get it in ebook and PDF formats. We'll put a link in the bio uh, from where you can find this book exactly, and we encourage you to check it out. It's a great collection. Uh, As usual, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art and Parquet Courts for their music, the intro-outro music of this podcast. And Matt, if people want to get in touch with us and they want to get in touch with Michael and Martin, how can they find all of us? Uh, For us, workincavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting email if people want to send us questions or ask us uh, anything. We're also Concavity Show on Instagram and Twitter. I think we have Facebook somewhere. Yeah, we um, do, but it's I don't really use it all that much. <laughs> I do not know. Uh, I will let uh, Martin and Michael talk about their presence, if they're on Academia or Twitter. Yeah, I got off social media about four years ago when they started doing the facial recognition stuff. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Good choice. Fair so enough. I, yep. I'm... I'm I'm doing my best to get off the grid. Uh, uh-huh. I, but if anyone wants to email me, they can reach me at prof.mcgowan at gmail.com. Sweet. Or they can just come and take a class with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Marty. 
and I'm at uh, uh, brickm at ohiodominican.edu. Um, I'm sure our uh, podcast host can put that in the bio. Um, well. And like Mike, I'm also uh, not on any social media. Um, I guess if you count LinkedIn as social media, I, I've got one <laughs> account there. It is mostly links to students who need me for references. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally add you now on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys being on here, and uh, thanks again for putting together this book. It's really fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Catch me now as I say. It's in the book, but like in what way? All right, just pretend I didn't ask that. Let's start over. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the questions that you asked.